Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 132 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it is the Asteroid Episode. Of the SLS cast because it turns out that there is a M type main belt asteroid just happens to be called 132 Aethra. Yeah. And with that little bit of uh, out there asteroidy knowledge, I of course am Matt. And coming to us from the newly refounded Tokyo Academy of Art, it is 132 Urethra? That is that what they named? Aethra. Aethra. Urethra? Aethra. Ureth- is that with U R or <laughs> without? <laughs> Tim Wow, Matt. Uh so I there's a first. I, I have a first to admit to you and to the fine person who uh listens to the show. Uh are you curious as to what I am here to admit to you? That you actually know why I referenced Tokyo Academy of Art before your name? Yeah, that that too. <laughs> why? <laughs> well, because I'm trying to, you know, this is remember it's the whole how how we introduced that you work for Sony thing. So I I was just completely blindsided that you just accepted Tokyo Academy of Art without you know. Without even being phased at all. So I assume that's the thing you have to confess that you actually already know. Well, I mean, no. I mean, that honestly, that's not what I ha- had to confess. Um, I, oh. I mean, the. I you want to do your confession first or after the art thing? Well, you know, yeah, tell me about the urethra asteroid thing. I'm curious. <laughs> all right, so it turns out that there was an opera student at the Tokyo Academy of Art. Right after Sony started making its first audio recorders. And he was complaining about just how bad the sound quality was to the point that these guys were impressed with his critique. And they actually hired him to come on board and help develop better equipment, which now, of course, Sony is one of the leading manufacturers of audio equipment that there is that's fascinating but where's the urethra asteroid where did that where does that plan i have no idea what's your um what's your confession sir oh well it's not as exciting as asteroids and technology speak but i have never eaten so many mcdonald's chicken mcnuggets within the past week ever that makes a lot more sense now i get this random ass text message from you i'm like what? <laughs> oh yeah, and I realized and, later on that I actually misspelled <laughs> nugs by accident. Did you now? I, I did. Did you misspell nugget in the worst possible? Way? I did. Well, <laughs> I I don't want to say it. That's what it autocorrected to because that would mean that I might use that word a lot, and really I don't. But you know, like you said a couple weeks ago, we should have a special segment called Tim Texts, or however you phrase oh, it. Oh, Texts from Tim? Texts I can't remember. Texts from Tim. I don't know. What, what, were there other fun little texts that I've sent you over the years that you remember? Oh my goodness. There, there really are. You have definitely sent a veritable gold mine, which I was smart enough to back up, but 
Um, while they have been backed up, they for whatever reason, my I got a new phone, and it didn't transfer over to my new phone. So I was a little disappointed with that. But um, so so far, your chicken N word is the only thing that I have currently. But I could go into the old Gmail and dig up some of the uh, other gems that you have. Maybe next week. Next week we can have, for the opening, we'll have texts from Tim. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know a lot of chicken, a lot of, a lot of hey, I don't want to cook anything. I'm just going to go to McDonald's and get 10-piece chicken McNuggets and enjoy them. And I have been enjoying them. I can't fit in well, any pants, awesome. but I've been I've been enjoying them, and that that's been my week, to be honest. That's all I've had to say about it. Other than I started a new notepad for the show, where I keep my notes on my notepad. So I've got a new notepad sitting right here. It's fresh. It's crisp. It's flat. It's not yet bendy like my other one. So I have to really break it in over the next couple episodes. So that's right, chicken nuggets and notepads. Sweet. Well, I got a. I was telling you, I got a new phone. It's a Note Four, so I guess I could use this as a notepad, even though I already have a Note Ten Point One Twenty Fourteen Edition. So I could have been using that. But I've also, um, I was listening to our friends over at We Are Not Here to Please You, and they had Steve Mudflat McGrew on. Very funny stuff, by the way. So make sure you're listening to them if you're not already, uh, or if you're not them, because you know they listen. But. Um, and they were talking about Periscope. So I'm trying to configure the Periscope app so that we can do some live podcasting action in the future. In the near future, within the next couple episodes, hopefully. Uh, that's frightening. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> video casting. Well, yeah, crazy ass video shit. Anyway, so that's been my week. Nothing else fun and exciting. So I actually got some emails, though. Email action this week. Well, I guess you have to read them if, I, if we have I some. I guess we shall then. Yes, yeah, so uh, again, emails are sent to the show at slscast.com. So we have a couple of followers on Twitter we need to mention. Uh, first up, at Uncle Slavko for Love in Time of Monsters, which actually I think that was just as much as he could fit because the actual film is called Love in the Time of Monsters. And we got um, kind of into a cool Twitter convo with Uncle Slavko, and thanks to said conversation, we're actually going to be reviewing <laughs> Love in the Time of Monsters. Um, this was, of course, due to the Zombievers... Um, episode and uh, it just goes to show you never know what's going to happen in the Twitterverse or in the universe of the internets so we got him to follow and then um, we also have uh, at Washburn Songs this is Cole Washburn who is a uh, country singer and found the the way to follow us on the SLS cast so um, sweet so a couple followers there. That's always nice. And then our good friend Fracken Cat from the Midnight Movie Nights with a K. That's my best cat impersonation. It's probably not very good. He sent us uh, an email. And apparently our three squared last week really struck a chord with some people. Um, I know that uh, Miranda um, or Siebes from Midnight Movie Nights with a K 
also had tweeted out hers. So let me see if I can pull that up real quick too. Do, 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 do. Pulling up stuff from the internet that we were sent. <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, Miranda, uh, at Miranda Janelle, she sent us that her three squared is I'm a believer, Shrek. Um, number one crush from Soldier's Girl, and Come and Get Your Love, Guardians of the Galaxy. Those were her three squared for her songs that she can only think of the movie when she hears the song. And then, of course, back to our email, which was done. Oh, and that Twitter that was, of course, at the SLS cast. It says here, from Fracking Cats, Hey guys, I enjoyed the last episode, especially the movie segment and Matt's rant about the kid. That's the second time that kids have gotten on his nerves, and I can't blame him. Annoying creatures. <laughs> I also liked your three squared and wanted to toss in three songs that remind me of movies every time I hear them. There are several, but I went with Tim's idea to choose something from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Look, while it was a little bit more deliberate with Tim, I also did the same thing. Okay? Whatever. Tim's cool. I apparently am not. First off, from 1983, I heard it through the grapevine from The Big Chill. The montage of the friends at the beginning to this song is always what I think about. Second, Little Green Bag from 1995's Reservoir Dogs. Title sequence with the main characters walking down the sidewalk, always memorable. Three, Tiny Dancer, almost famous from 2000. The band and band aids singing along to the Elton John song on the tour bus. That's just three choices I thought I'd share. Appreciate the show, guys, and keep up the good work. Cat. Awesome. And I sent back, I replied with, Excellent choices, Kitty! Especially on Little Green Bag. More proof that Tarantino is simply a master of masters, up to uh, including soundtracks of movies. And thank you for the mail. And on behalf of Cool Tim, I thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. There you go. All right, so that, of course, again... Email to the show at slscast.com. And then um, finishing up the email, finishing up the email train. You know, if we could find something from like the 90s <laughs> where they're like introducing email, I really think that would be bad. <laughs> All right. Now, before we get to the real news news, I do have a little bit of news of the weird. And this comes to us from news.yahoo.com uh, by way of Reuters, by way of MacDonald Zirutui. And I apologize if I messed that last name up. As currency dies. Well, actually, do you know, Tim, have you ever seen a quadrillion of anything that you're aware of? Yeah, um... Ants, maybe? <laughs> Is there? Can there be a quadrillion ants in a in a mound? How about how about um, specks of of dust? Okay, it is actually a number. Oh, so we got millions, billions. Yeah. Okay, so it's the next step up from trillion. Now we have a, a national debt, you know, uh, the U.S. debt's definitely up in the like nineteen trillion dollars now. But could you imagine one quadrillion of anything? Well, as it turns out, 
that as a currency dies, Zimbabweans will get five whole dollars, five U.S. dollars, for 175 quadrillion local dollars. Wow. So if you want to go buy an ice cream cone, you have to basically bring multiple sacks of currency with you to go buy yes, a Klondike bar. Yes, you would have bar. to like hire a Brinks truck <laughs> to take and stock it full of cash. It turns out that part of one of the things that they do um, is local Zimbabweans will actually sell their currency to tourists. Um, they, they just suffered from hyperinflation literally to the point that they were printing 200 and $500 million bills. Um, the, it, their, their, their inflation hit 500 billion percent in 2008. So, yeah. And, and they, so even though they've been using currencies like, uh, the U S dollar and the South African Rand since 2009, they still have been printing their money. Now they don't. Um, they, they, now they are not doing that anymore. They are getting rid of it. Um, but they have banknotes like a hundred trillion. They have a hundred trillion dollar banknote. <laughs> um, it, yeah. And so it says here though, that bank accounts with balances of up to 175 quadrillion Zimbabwean dollars will be paid five dollars and that those balances above 175 quadrillion dollars will be paid at an exchange rate of one dollar to 35 quadrillion zimbabwean dollars yeah the hundred trillion dollar banknote was the last one that they made yeah that's disturbing so that is my news of the weird and i guess without further ado here we go folks it is the movies. Wait, the movies? Yes. God damn it! I was trying to set you up with a really good one so that we, when you, when you snip these out to create the segments later, I was really trying to set them up to be nice, and then I fucked it up. All right, let's try this again. So here we go, folks. It is the news. <laughs> All right, so first up from BBC.com. I like how you complimented yourself. <laughs> that, that was a good one. <laughs> first up, BBC.com via entertainment and arts um, with no direct, um, yeah, with no direct attribution possible. So I guess entertainment and arts at the BBC. FIFA film flops at the box office. Now, last week I told you how the L.A. premiere of the FIFA film um, United Passions had a whopping two people attend. But, you know, it takes more than two people to bring in a whole $607. So, clearly, like, 20 people in the United States went and saw the movie. So, hey... Way to go. 
<laughs> That's all I've got. A vanity film about the history of FIFA has flopped in the U.S., taking just $607. That's 397 pounds in its opening weekend. <laughs> Um, the Village Voice called it, quote, not merely ham-fisted, but pork-shouldered, bacon-wristed, and sausage-elbowed, end quote. <laughs> the Guardian added that, quote, as proof of corporate insanity, it is a valuable case study, end quote. Any thoughts on that, Tim? Well, um, I, I look for it on Netflix. I'll watch it on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely screenshot of Tim Roth playing Set Blatter. Revealing the host nation for the 2010 World Cup. Does he look anything like Seth Blatter? Um, Seth Blatter from five years ago. He's definitely wearing makeup. Yeah. There is definitely makeup going on here. So, Huh. Anyway, what do you got, sir? All right, I'm going to just go through uh, this passing really quick. Not only because it's sad, but it is important. And there, I'm sure everybody already knows about this. The uh, famous, the, the, the world-renowned heavy metal rocker known as Christopher Lee has passed away at the age of 93. He wasn't only known for being a hard rocker, but Christopher Lee is probably most known for playing one of the more famous Dracula roles. And for the younger kids out there, he is probably more known as playing Count Dooku. In the Star Wars prequel movies. But he passed away at the age of 93. And this is from the HuffingtonPost.com. Chris Lee, the British actor known for his roles in Dracula, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings trilogy, has died. He was 93 years old. The beloved performer died Sunday at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. He has been receiving treatment for respiratory problems and heart failure. Lee first gained fame in the film industry during the 1950s when he landed roles in the creature feature The Curse of Frankenstein and Count Dracula, perhaps his most recognizable performance. Quote, He imbued every character, however far-fetched, with a cold and gentile grandeur, as if each one was a monument that would withstand whatever time and the weather could throw at him. End quote. Film critic Robbie Collin wrote in The Telegraph. End all quotes. So that is most definitely sad. So R.I.P. Chris Lee, R.I.P. And I'm just going to jump into this other one. Completely different topic. <laughs> Completely. I'll just say that in the picture here for this article, it has Cheech and Chong smoking a big old blunt in a very shaggy van. And this is from the A.V. Club. Movie characters use way more drugs than real people. Study suggests, yes, more studies on things that people probably should be using their time, you know, more wisely on, I guess. I think I said that right. Who knows? But this is written by Joe Blevins, and it says this, drug use statistically speaking, is on the rise in the United States. In 2002, 8.2% of respondents reported recent drug use. By 2013, that number had increased to 9.4%. During that same period, however, the use of cocaine, marijuana, LSD, and other mind-altering substances has risen roughly a gajillion percent in the movies. Is there a connection there? That's what the sober citizens at the New York Film Academy have been trying to determine with their historically-minded high-cinema project. 
which has already yielded some tasty infographs and a neat little accompanying video too. NYFA's findings are interesting if, so far, inconclusive. The researchers behind High Cinema are not necessarily willing to blame movies for any real-life spikers in substance abuse, but they do want to know if movies can actually encourage drug use. What NYFA can say for sure is that on-screen depiction of drug use waxes and wanes according to prevailing social studies and government controls. In other words, the depiction of drugs in movies depends largely on the tenor of the times. Reefer Madness was as much a product of the 1930s as Scarface was of the 1980s. But is this a good thing, or a bad thing, or just a neutral thing? That depends on your perspective. On the one hand, NYFA's video cites a Swedish study that suggested that train spotting may have actually helped to curb heroin use through its negative portrayal of the drug. Then again, Columbia University says that kids who watch R-rated movies are more likely to try marijuana. One undeniable fact? Movie characters use way way, way more drugs than real people actually do. Heroin, marijuana, and LSD have all been creeping northward in popularity lately, but they've positively skyrocketed on the silver screen. Cocaine, meanwhile, has managed to thrive on the big screen while nosediving in the real world. In all quotes, and you can actually either uh, through the AV Club that the uh, article is on, or through YouTube, you can watch this video entitled, Do Movies Encourage Drug Use? That is a question. So, Matt, what do you think? Do you think movies encourage drug use? Absolutely, and that playing violent video games also makes you more prone to violence, <laughs> and that uh, jacking off increases your risk of prostate cancer. Um, these are all things that have been time and again proven to be 100% true. This brought to you by Opposite Day. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think more so than violence in movies, I think drugs in movies can definitely encourage people to do more drugs because unlike... Violence, which has serious consequences, not only on those that are doing the violence, but those that are also receiving the violence. And I think a lot of people look at drugs as if like, oh, I'm doing this to myself. And man, this movie, it, man, they make it look so much cool, like listening to this song and how they're talking about drugs. I got it. I disagree, bro. I got to disagree. I don't think people watch the basketball diaries or train spotting or leaving Las Vegas and say to themselves, God damn, I can't wait to do that. Well, no, I'm that, not talking this, about I those movies. Try. <laughs> I'm not no, I'm not talking about train spotting because train spotting is definitely anti all that stuff. But say no, but I, mean, uh, pine, I think I think with the I, Pineapple I say, Express okay. though. Do you think Okay, sure. I was gonna say with the exception of pot. Yeah. Which really that's just been the advent of um, pop culture and really and think and television just as much um, 
with like things like that 70s show and stuff like that, which really more or less just exposed how prevalent marijuana has been in our culture, despite what your parents told you. Oh, look, they fucking smoked it too, and nothing happened to them. And now, of course, we've come to legalization. So yeah, maybe some more kids tried pot. But I don't think that overall movies encourage or promote drug use. I, I'm sorry, I you know... We got. I definitely don't think that. they directly do that, but there are definitely some movies. Well, what, what's interesting is you watch movies like Scarface, where you know that is like a very cocaine type of movie, but it shows you like basically if you do cocaine, you turn into Scarface, <laughs> and that is not a, a good thing. And then as we, we well, mentioned, specifically, with train- specifically, if you bury your face into a pile of cocaine on your desk, you might turn. <laughs> Tony Montana. Yeah, and then like with train spotting with heroin, and you know that can lead to dead babies and bad decisions. But then you also have movies about doing LSD and mushrooms, and those turn out better than uh, these other movies that pertain to you know hard more of a hardcore you know substance or whatnot. So in some way, I can see where drugs like marijuana or mushrooms, which a lot of people believe and say, and it is somewhat proven, that they are not bad for you unless they are abused. But if you abuse anything, it's bad for you. So yeah, but it's 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 interesting. And it's interesting how they're lumping stuff like mushrooms or LSD and marijuana with cocaine and heroin. Because I tell you what, <laughs> those are all totally different. Yeah, you know... Hooking up with some yay on a Saturday night is not the is not is not anywhere the same thing as smoking a J any other day of the week. I just you know so <laughs> anyway, it's not like smoking a J before going to church. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Um, due to our lengthy pre-show and kids that needed to be fed dinner late at night here in Texas, uh, I'm gonna end my. Movie news with this uh, from the New York Post via, I guess, nypost.com by way of Kyle Smith. Women are not capable of understanding Goodfellas. Now, this starts off rather innocuous enough. The first time I saw Goodfellas on a rented blockbuster videotape in 1991, I was in a daze as the final credits rolled. If I had been a cartoon character, I would have had stars dancing around my head like Wile E. Coyote. I turned to my girlfriend and said, What do you think? Boy movie, she declared, and I knew our relationship was doomed. Just kidding. We split up because I was a jerk. (laughs) Self-fulfilling prophecy, maybe? But women don't get Goodfellas. It's not really a crime drama like The Godfather. It's more of a male fantasy picture. Entourage with guns instead of swimming pools. The Rat Pack minus tuxedos. Um, Now, he... Now, he continue, he goes on and kind of describes that the movie's getting its 25th anniversary and everything's coming up in the Blu-ray and all that stuff. But he's talking about, like, the lengths to which the ball-busting occurred within the film and how women don't relate to that level of ball-busting the way guys can relate. Um, he then equates it to, like, Sex in the City, 
and here he says, when the Sex and the City girls sit around at brunch, they're a tightly knit clique. But their rule is to always be sympathetic and supportive as each describes her problems usually revolving around the men in her life. Now, I have to say I do agree to a certain extent with that specific um, take on it because I think one of the funniest things I ever saw in Sex and the City uh, was the episode where uh, Samantha has this guy that she's seeing and basically his semen tastes terrible. And I guess she prides herself on swallowing. I don't know. Whatever. And so they're sitting around at brunch and Samantha just busts out with, you know, my boyfriend has funky tasting spunk. <laughs> and then Charlotte literally just stands up, takes her purse and walks out of the walks out of the restaurant. And that's like the funniest thing I have ever seen in that show. Um, and and guys would not guys would definitely have a completely different uh, scenario going on, you know. If they were talking about a girl who was not hygienic downstairs, there would just be the ball busting that would occur, you know. Um, followed by, oh, shut up, you know, you've done it, and whatever. So I can kind of see the comparisons to something that guys really love that they take from Goodfellas versus something that women truly love from something that they're that is definitely geared more towards them, i.e., Sex in the City. But for me. I I kind of got to say that while I understand certainly where he is coming from and that Goodfellas while an excellent cinematic masterpiece that both male and female critics have um enjoyed in large numbers since 1991 uh, or 1990 rather I can see how the everyday girlfriend type Sure, they might not necessarily enjoy the film um, for what it's for, for what it's worth for them, but not capable of understanding it. No, um, I, I just I personally think that this guy was I don't know. I believe Mr. Smith is making valid points about the film itself, but the points that he's making don't back up his argument and I'm thinking that it was more for shock value than anything else uh, he has definitely been derided all over Twitter he, and there was so it took me four four articles to backtrack through the through the hyperlinks and all of the articles until I could get to the actual original article that's how much people are talking about it and going off on it but what do you think Tim do you think that women are not capable of understanding Goodfellas? No, I mean, I, unf- no. <laughs> I, I, again, I certainly would be, I could certainly, I would certainly say that there are probably, um, I would feel comfortable venturing out into the unknown and saying that by and large, generally speaking, the preponderance of men enjoy Goodfellas more than the preponderance of women. Well, yeah, because... But it's saying that they just aren't capable of understanding it is an entirely different thing altogether. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's, it's the same thing with, uh, with things that, that, lady, that the ladies like. You know, like Sex in the City, of course. More women are going to be watching Sex in the City than guys. The statistics are there. That, that's the balance of things. More women watch Sex in the City than guys do. And because of the type of, like, the genre and what the show is, 
you know, it appeals more to ladies than most guys. And same thing with, with Goodfellas. But I know I've met a number of women of all sorts of ages who have enjoyed Goodfellas as much as I enjoy Goodfellas. Or any Martin Scorsese movie, for that matter. So, yeah, I think this guy is a fucking dick. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, sir, bring us home on the news. What do you got? All right, well, I'm just going to mention these two little things really quick. One of them is kind of an update from something I was talking about last week. And real quick, I decided this past weekend to rewatch Big Trouble in Little China with a friend of mine. I got to say that... Watching it the second time, because I've only seen it one other time, and I didn't care for it as much, I thought that Kim Cattrall rubbed me the wrong way, I didn't like her character, and I guess I just really didn't understand the movie, and this was years ago. While I finally went back... Years. What's that? It hasn't been that long since you watched it for the show. Has it been years since we watched it for the show? Did we watch it for the show? We did, because we did a, um, has it aged well on it. Oh, did we? Oh, okay, then... A year and a half ago. <laughs> well, yeah, I decided to rewatch it again, or to rewatch it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm more prone to not really being all jazzed about the upcoming reboot or remake that Dwayne The Rock Johnson wants to do. And we're not the only ones. In fact, according to The Hollywood Reporter here, John Carpenter not excited for Dwayne Johnson's Big Trouble remake. Quote, depends on how much they pay me, end quote. And uh, this is what it says. Johnson is in talks to star in a new version of the 1986 cult classic. However, John Carpenter is feeling little excitement about a big trouble in Little China redo. The legendary director spoke to the Wall Street Journal on Thursday about whether he would be involved in the new version of the film or not. And he says this, quote, I'm ambivalent about a remake. On the other hand, it depends on how much they pay me, end quote. According to Bleeding Cool, Carpenter took part in a Facebook thread about the remake, saying that he was not involved in the project. He said he was, quote, fined, end quote, with the new version because he didn't write the original film, adding, quote, no harm, no foul, end quote. Uh, and just to note that the screenwriters for the upcoming remake are Ashley Miller and Zach Stentz, uh, and they both have writing credits for Thor and X-Men First Class. And the second little bit of news here, and then I'll ask Matt if he has any questions, comments, or concerns, pertains to Terry Gilliam, the Terry Gilliam that I thoroughly enjoy, the writer and director of Brazil. He directed The Zero Theorem, The Fisher King, which I know is Matt's favorite of his films. Well, it turns out he made a deal... This is via theplaylist.com. He made a deal with Amazon to release Don Quixote and possibly a defective detective miniseries. And this is written by Rodrigo Perez. And uh, yeah, Don Quixote is the movie he's been trying to make for years. In fact, there's a documentary um, back when, uh, back when uh, but, but, but what's his name, Johnny Depp was supposed to be in the film, where it chronicles them making the movie and ultimately they had to stop making the movie because the funding fell through and nothing would work. None of the sets were being built on time, but it says this Terry Gilliam has never had the easiest relationship with Hollywood. Brazil was held hostage until he took out ads in the trades to force its release. The over budget, the Avengers of Baron Munchausen almost threw him into director's jail 
It likely would have had he not landed the director for gig hire of The Fisher King, and he butted heads with the Weinstein Company throughout the making of The Brothers Grimm. No matter the increasing difficulties that the independent finance film world but faces, Gilliam remains unbowed and undeterred. Gilliam's about to celebrate the lovingly crafted Criterion Collection release of The Fisher King, and during the playlist's recent conversation with the idiosyncratic filmmaker about the Rob Williams and Jeff Bridges starring classic, he revealed his future plans. It's abundantly clear that Gilliam is still trying to mount his long gestating production of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. It's my madness, Gilliam laughed about the project that he cannot let go and which won't let go of him. It's had several delays over the last few years, but if all goes according to plan, the movie will shoot in early 2016 with Jack O'Connell and John Hurt as the two leads. Gilliam wouldn't comment about any other casting rumors or why the film has experienced so many false starts, but revealed Coyote is part of his recently signed Amazon Studios deal. And it goes on from there, talks about theatrical windows, about, you know, the time you have allotted to produce the movie until it's released, and how Amazon, you know, there's more flexibility there. And this is also the, the same thing that you've heard time and time again with Netflix and with their miniseries, uh, especially with Rust Development, where they had a lot of uh, breathing room to put that show together. Uh, so yeah, it's very interesting. I think this is going to be a great format or a great uh, area for Gilliam to play in because I think he'll have more input than usual. So yay. Matt, any comments, questions, concerns with either of those bits of news? Yeah, on the Terry Gilliam thing, I have to say, I guess I'll just believe it when I see it. Ooh. I hope it happens for him. And it really does come to fruition and everything works out the way it's supposed to. But this has been a red herring for him for so long. Coyote. That yeah, the man who point, killed Don Coyote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, that I've just, at this point, I've got to say I'll believe it when I see it. Um, as far as the uh, Big Trouble in Little China thing, yeah, see, you know, JC, as I like to call John Carpenter, because, you know, we're simpatico and everything, see? I told you last week, fuck him for trying, or two weeks ago, whatever, fuck him for fucking something up. See? I'm not the only one who thinks that. Uh, but, oh, to clear that up, it wasn't a, um, did it age well. It was the very first I'm the only one who liked it that we did back in um, November of 2013. And you watched it at my behest, because your pick was Casino Royale, but I asked you to watch it because I thought you would love it, and then you didn't like it very much then. So I liked it. Now, now. What, had your friend not seen it though? Had your yeah, friend he's, not seen, he's it seen it before? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was just. I think we both watched it for the maybe. second time. Well, right yeah. on. Okay, so that takes care of the news and brings us to our bonus segment of the week. Did it age well? Shang Tsung, you will die. 
with his forces of darkness. In an ancient tournament, one more victory was sold. It's mine. In our world, no! is theirs. It has begun. Covering 1995's Mortal Kombat, the movie, um, or just known as Mortal Kombat. Um, this film stars Robin Shu and Lyndon Ashby, Bridget Wilson, and Christopher Lambert, um, along with uh, Talisa Soto and also Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, um, or Hiroyuki, pardon me, sorry. And all right, now, I'm just going to sum it up this way. In short, the film has not aged well, but not because of special effects. I think that taking into the account that this was still very, very early um, computer the CGI, because Reptile in this film is partially CGI, and also the Goro effects were very much practical, I think it was definitely a good step, stepping stone for um, effects in that transition period. And so it's, it's in that regard akin to kind of looking back on Ray Harryhausen films where you can certainly appreciate that they definitely were great for their time and just simply, you know... Um, became very claymation-y and stop-motion animation like that. So in the effects department, it's that good. The, the other thing that I would say that this film did well as a video game adaptation is truly attempting to incorporate the various aspects of the video game that it was representing. And I think it did a very good job of that overall. However, it did also completely overstep the bounds on stupid things like finish him and flawless victory and stuff like that. But the incorporation of the characters in the plot, definitely. Outside of that, um, Christopher Lambert should never, ever, ever put on the Big Trouble in Little China outfit ever again. Okay? Because make no mistake, Raiden was lifted straight out of Big Trouble from Little China. Um, and, and as far as the acting and everything else, if you ever wondered why Bridget Wilson's career floundered, hmm, just watch this movie. Um, it's great fun, and even though it was PG-13 20 years ago, it's definitely in the realm of PG today. Uh, my kids love it. They think it's great. Didn't age well. Watching this movie as a kid when it came out, I was seven. I think me and my friends liked this movie just because it was a Mortal Kombat 
movie. Like, the idea of it being... My daughter's seven, and she likes this movie. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's just the idea of it being... Well, I mean, are they familiar with a video game? Not even a little bit. This was their first, you know, foray. I explained to them that it was a video game. But, um, and, and I explained to them what the video game was about, and that was a big thing during the time, and that's what the movie's based on. But... Yeah, they still like it despite that. I want to teach your daughters the next time I see them to uh-huh. hover over you whenever you're asleep, hold their hand out, and in a deep voice go, Finish him! <laughs> that would be That'd, hilarious. Be or <laughs> Flawless <laughs> victory. Anyways. Yeah. Carry okay, on. Yeah, sorry, so, sorry so uh, as a kid, I liked this movie a lot, or enjoyed it, because it was a video game movie. And I would, I mean, I never owned the game because I was never allowed to own the game, but I knew a lot of people that did own this game. And I thought it was cool that, oh, wow, I'm actually playing these characters and I'm actually watching them on screen. So I kind of didn't really focus on the dialogue or the number of times they actually reference or mention the words Mortal Kombat. Because every one minute, either Chris Lambert or the bad guy or one of them goes, Oh, Mortal Kombat. Oh, wait, 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 what's Mortal Kombat? Oh, you don't know of Mortal Kombat? Mortal Kombat is the fight for destiny. Your world depends on Mortal Kombat. And you really don't actually know what the hell Mortal Kombat is, other than just people fighting, and if you lose, I guess your world dies. That And really, when you think about it, that's actually not a bad plot. You know, it's not a bad story for a video game-based movie. I think if they ever decided to remake this, uh, or not remake this movie, but make another Mortal Kombat movie based on the game, I hope they go with this kind of more fantasy approach. Because I know they released a like a short video or short film not too long ago, and it was very violent. I mean, it was littered with cursing, and it was violent. Though... Uh, your woman, Starbuck, from Battlestar Galactica, was there, is in it. So, she's good looking. But, it, they really need, it needs to have that sense of fun and an excitement and kind of tap into the kid inside of you. Because, I mean, the idea of a Mortal Kombat movie is ridiculous to begin with. But, I guess I digress. So, the just because it was a Mortal Kombat movie, I, that's the only reason why I liked it as a kid. Did you know that Chris Lambert was only 38 years old when they made this movie? Yes, I did know that Christopher Lambert was 38 when they made this and movie. And did you know that any gay guy probably could have played his role better than Christopher Lambert or Lambert? You're trying to tell me that there are people other than Christopher Lambert who can go, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. You're telling me there there's more than one person in the world that can do that? Yes. I don't believe you, sir. I don't believe you. So, I, okay, Matt, I know you can do this voice, but to me, Lambert kind of sounded like an old Brooklyn broad who's a heavy smoker. So can you do that voice, but with a with a Christopher Lambert lisp? Um, I guess, what do you want me to say? I don't know. Something really dumb from <laughs> involving Mortal Kombat. And realms. <laughs> I guess I'd have to say that I like going to the Mortal Kombat realms. <laughs> <laughs> we should just overdub the entire movie. <laughs> um, 
but so you got all that and like this this is a total 90s movie uh robin shu i think it's either shu or show he was what's his name the really badass asian good guy in the movie uh, he was also in another great 90s comedy uh, uh, with Chris Farley, Beverly Hills Ninja. And honestly, after watching this movie, I wish there was more of him. I wish they made more movies with him. Because like how Jackie Chan was, but I think even more so, he has like a good personality, you know? He's a very likable guy. And it just kind of made me a little nostalgic feeling just wishing there was more uh, Robin Shu in the movies. Let's see, if you watch this movie on Netflix, uh, it's in high def, and you can really tell that they're shooting a lot of the stuff on a soundstage in high def. Like, at the beginning of the movie, they're on that boat on the way to the island, and they're supposed to be in the middle of an ocean. They're not. They're, like, in a tiny... It looks like they they shot it in a bedroom, <laughs> and they're all on a bed that's made to look like a ship. This is a good example of how... High definition can ruin a movie because where, you know, the gra- some of the graininess and the not actually too clear of 35 millimeter projection back in the 90s, it was able to cover up some of the some of the hokiness a little bit. You know, it's and it's also not just because this movie is, you know, is, is really dated either. Um, let's see, what do I have here? And it's also amazing how six years later, Lord of the Rings was released and four years later, The Matrix came out. It goes to show that effects came along pretty far in just a couple of years. So, I mean, does this movie age well? Not at all. But, like what Matt was saying, is it still entertaining? It definitely is. It was just over-the-top, goofy, and, you know, just just kind of fun to watch. You know, the the heart was in the right place, I should say. So, did it age well? Mortal Kombat, the movie from 95, absolutely not. But is it entertaining? Sure. Outstanding. All right, well, next week, we're going to actually have a discussions with Matt and Tim, and we're going to be going over, um, oh, God, what's the damn name of the black what? Black Angel. Jesus, right? Black Angel? Yeah? Yeah, Black Black Angel. Angel. Black Angel. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Black Angel. The Lost 1981 short that was done for Empire Strikes Back as the double feature in Europe that was resurrected and is now available on YouTube for free. Totally go and watch it. Uh, there, We're going to discuss that short film, the merits of it, what it did right, did wrong, if anything, on either side. And the fact that they are going to be, able to be making an entire film out of this so um yeah so it's gonna be an in-depth discussion of all things black angel and i believe without further ado that does officially for sure this time bring us to the movie This week's movies are Spy from 2015, Love and Mercy, and Jurassic World. Where do you want to start first, sir? How about Spy? All right, Spy. It's the American action comedy film written and directed by Paul Feig. Feig, I never don't know. Him and Kevin Feige, 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 I don't... 
I always get those that I don't know how to do their last names. Feige, um, Feige, and it's Feige, foe. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is Paul Feige. Um, Melissa McCarthy, Jason Statham, Rose Byrne, Miranda Hart, Bobby Kevin, uh, Cannavale, uh, Allison Janney, Jude Law, Nargis uh, Farkey, all these wonderful people star in it. And basically we have Susan Cooper, played by Melissa McCarthy, is the woman in the ear of Jude Law, who plays Agent Bradley Fine. And after... Uh, Something terrible befalls Agent Bradley Fine. Susan more or less finds herself in the role of an actual spy. Instead of being the person in the control room, walking him through everything, now she's the spy. She has to go on an international adventure chasing evildoer Rose Byrne, who, is played, uh, who, who plays the role of Rania Boyanov. Um, this, is, this is definitely... A complete Melissa McCarthy vehicle, and I find I'm finding that Melissa McCarthy seems to have in the comedy department. In in my opinion, she's got the um, oh, what is the matter with me? Who uh, was in Jesus Christ, Blades of Glory, um, Talladega Nights, Stepbrothers? Thank you very much. I don't know where my head is. Yeah, today. he's only been in a couple really indie indie flicks. Well, well, no, it's not that. <laughs> it's just that Will Ferrell. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's just that Will Ferrell seems to like every other movie that he's in is really funny, and then every other movie that he's in is not good. And this seems to be the thing that is falling into place. From Melissa McCarthy as well. So it seems like the next funny movie she's in after this probably won't be very funny. Um, that being said, this is really a great film. And I think this team of Paul Feig and Melissa McCarthy um, is, is a good one. The only thing that I would say is that where, this, where the movie falls is when it tries to... Um, take the spy genre a little too seriously, introducing too many twists and turns, instead of letting the comedy simply follow its own narrative path, which was happening anyway, they kind of introduce um, too many plot twists, so to speak, um, to give it some oomph in the plot department. But this is a movie that doesn't need that. It relies on the gags and the comedy that the plot itself just generates without having to have real plot points. It's almost like it's kind of like, well, we're trying to make a real movie here too. No, the movie was already good enough as it was. You had really good caliber actors, um, good timing, and great gags overall. So you didn't really need to add serious plot developments to it and having, you know, real spy switch stuff. Um... So those kinds of things I really felt just were gratuitous and took away from the fun of the comedy that was this movie. So I'm going to give this one, I was toying with 3.25, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go solid 3.5. Good movie, definitely had fun, and you'll probably enjoy it as well if this is your kind of thing. Well, I think when it comes down to Melissa McCarthy and me reviewing it, I think... Regardless, people will probably enjoy it more than me. I, I mean, I'm I'm guessing, especially since on Rotten Tomatoes, I think this movie has like a 94% fresh. And 
I, I gotta say, I was disappointed with this movie because critics are saying that this is the funniest and most original spy comedy, and it's not. I'll start off with some positive stuff about the movie. It was shot really well. It had some really cool ideas, and I like how, in part of doing a comedy, a spy comedy, it wasn't necessarily a spoof. They were actually trying to make their own little spy movie. And I like that a lot. I think that was a great idea, and I, that is definitely the path you have to take in making a movie like this and for it to be successful. But it felt like they were trying to do two different things that didn't really work out completely throughout the entire movie. And that was melding the idea of having a, you know, the spy story, kind of not, I don't want to say a real spy story, because I guess any story is a real story in, in a movie's world. But they're having this this good story for a comedy, and then they're they're taking all these jokes that were kind of bland, unfunny, and not original, but super raunchy, just to be raunchy. And at times, it really didn't mix. It just felt like it was making it was stalling the movie more so than progressing the movie or progressing the characters. Like I'm not saying the entire movie is not funny. At the beginning, the opening scene, it had a lot of really funny stuff. And when when Melissa McCarthy was playing the character straight, her jokes were fantastic. It was when she her character turns around and starts being more crass and becomes more of a, you know, in, in her mind, a badass when she and she starts throwing around fuck a lot and just really kind of picking apart some of the, you know, characters just to be funny. I don't want to say it took me out of the movie, but it definitely took me out of the flow of the movie to where it just where there were there were like witty good laughs and I'm not saying raunchy movies cannot be witty or well done and this movie some of the raunch in the movie is witty and it is well done and well thought out again it's it's the shock value it's the shock laughter it's the picture of the guy posing with his big old dick you don't need to see that I mean there was nothing funny about it again it was the shock factor. And that's really all I have to say about it. I give it 2.75 out of 5. I mean, a lot of people will enjoy it, and I can see why, but I just needed more genuine humor and genuine wit than all that shock and what I like to call like the family guy type of humor, where they have to like explain the joke as they're telling the joke so that it's funny. 2.75 out of 5. For me. Right on, sir. Where would you like to go from How here? about Jurassic World? Alright. Jurassic World 2015 American science fiction adventure film directed by Colin Trevorrow. And uh, while it's the fourth installment in the Jurassic, film ser- Jurassic Park film series, this one really seems to come in as more of a... Um, as more of a filler from just one to four, it seemed it really acknowledges one without acknowledging two and three. It stars Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, Vincent D'Onofrio, Ty Simpkins, Nick Robinson, Omar Sy, B.D. Wong, F. Uh, Infant Khan, Katie McGrath, and Jake Johnson. Now, while Steven Spielberg uh, was the Executive producer, this is definitely something that it had his touch, but this was definitely not his film. 
And this takes place 22 years after the events of Jurassic Park. And we now have a park called Jurassic World. And it is definitely up and running. They are constantly trying to up the wow factor and get more people to come in. Uh, it's, it's making money, but it's not necessarily blowing shareholders away, so to speak. Um, I thought it was, a, it was a pretty funny jab at Disney, I thought, because there is so much product placement in this film, but it is done under the guise of corporate partnerships for everything within the Jurassic World theme park. And... I I truly thought it was just a brilliant touch because while it does acknowledge the fact that you know these things cost just tons and tons of money, um, I will probably have an uh, a piece of news next week that will go into just how many billions of dollars it would have taken. It's pretty funny when you go to Disney World and you see you know corporate sponsorship, corporate partner, corporate, 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 all this stuff all over the place. And it's like, isn't this supposed to be Disney? (laughs) So um, to see that in the film was both um, funny and at the same time, it it made sense. And and I'm okay with that. I am okay with product placement when it makes sense. All right. I'm one of those rare people. Doesn't mind. Um, However, where the film truly succeeds is in acknowledging its past. There's also two specific times that you can see this, and I thought this was just priceless. There are two points where there are people reading a book, and the jacket cover clearly has a very blurry but still recognizable Ian Malcolm on the back jacket cover, and I just thought that was great because they're reference. You know, it's like referencing his time with Jurassic Park. I thought it was just outstanding. So kudos to them for getting that in there. Um, and there's and they definitely throughout the course of the movie visit the original Jurassic Park area and stuff like that. Um, so they so it's rather brilliant in that regard. It's also a very in, inventive story, aside from the whole thing that you get in the trailer about them trying to invent a new species and everything like that. Um, there's really uh, a lot of fun to be had in terms of watching everybody, just watching hubris take over. Just like in the first movie, it really draws a lot of parallels to the original Jurassic Park. Now, I, I was a huge Huge, huge Jurassic Park fan. Loved it. Watched it 10 times in the theaters. Back in in, in the 90s. I watched it 10 times when it was originally out. And I watched it again when it was in IMAX. So I guess technically I've seen it 11 times in the theater. And so it was really cool for me to watch them do these things. However, then you've got stuff that happens where the CEO guy for the park... Um, tries to fly a helicopter, and he doesn't. And he's still a couple days out from getting his helicopter license. But he's like, "Oh, I'm a badass, and I can do it." And it's immediately you already know what's going to happen. So they do these great setups, but then fail on executions um, in other regards. And so it it detracts from that experience as a whole. It's still a fun popcorn flick. Definitely enjoyed it, but I just couldn't I couldn't give it that really really liked it. So, I'm stopping short at a 3.75 out of 5. 
And I did see it in IMAX in 3D. So there you go. How, how was the 3D? Um, pretty good. Pretty good. I, I would say um, if you're already in IMAX in 3D, whatever. Um, if you're not doing it in IMAX and you're wondering if you should pay for 3D, I would say take it or leave it. If you're a big fan, go for it. If you only watch it when it's worth it, then skip it. Okay. Well, I, I went and saw this movie again at the Cinerama Dome. Perfect picture, perfect sound. I wasn't bothered at all by anybody, and the movie had my full focus. But I think I made the mistake of watching this movie after seeing Love and Mercy, because I went from seeing a really good, a movie made with care and compassion, to going to see a movie that, to me, wasn't really handled all that compassionately. I remember seeing Jurassic Park when it first came out. You know, 22 years ago, I remember being in the movie theater and and shitting my pants because, I, I mean, you know what, I was pretty young, so I still could have been shitting my pants. I know my sister was probably shitting her pants at the time. It was frightening, you know, and it wasn't because it was horror or anything, and not because the effects were so damn good, but it was because of the storytelling, it was because of the setup. You know, you had characters you actually cared about. Nobody was trying to be funny. Everything just kind of went about in a natural way, whether it be the storytelling itself, whether it be the humor, or even the characterization. Everything just kind of happened on its own. And especially whenever you saw people get killed by a dinosaur, getting eaten up or whatever, even the people that you really aren't really like the greatest people in the movie, there was still a reaction to them getting eaten. Like, oh my God. Oh, wow. God, look at that. Wow. In some way, I understand. It was because, oh my, it's dinosaurs on the big screen. But again, I think it was because of the filmmaking and because of the storytelling. So all of you people that say, oh, it was because it's Jurassic Park. You can't compare it to Jurassic Park. I have to say, go fuck yourself. Because I am sick and tired of people saying that you cannot criticize a movie or compare another movie to a predecessor or anything like that because there is no way of comparing or competing with that movie. Well, then what's the point of continuing a franchise or continuing these movies if you cannot at least attempt, I'm not saying be exactly like the movie, but you can still incorporate good filmmaking, and good tension, and good storytelling. I'm not saying that Jurassic World is missing all that stuff. In fact, there is a number of stuff to like about the movie. But unfortunately, what I didn't like about the movie was stuff that you, I mean, I, I just really didn't care for or just really was annoyed about. It just kind of felt cheap. Now, I felt that Jurassic World was constantly reaching for generic wow or forced amazement. Like like with the original movie, you know, you would watch it and you would go by the dinosaurs and the music would swell and the characters like, oh, wow, God, wow, that's amazing. And you're watching and you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty amazing. And they kind of do the same thing. But instead of creating their their own way of of channeling that amazement, they kind of they I don't want to say they rip off the original movie, but they rip off kind of the same type of shots and the same type of scenes instead of channeling that in a different and more creative way and made it more of its own take on a Jurassic Park movie. 
while relying on the special effects, because there's a lot of special effects in this movie, and attempting to set up characters and explaining why the park itself, Jurassic World, will not be as good as the original Jurassic Park. Uh, In fact, that's exactly what they're doing in this movie. They're trying to convince you, the audience, that there is no way that this movie will be as good or better, you know, not even top, the original movie, but instead of just coming out and saying, oh, you know what this movie you're watching is, <laughs> it's not going to compare to the first one. They're kind of saying it as if, oh, this park is not going to be as good as the other park and all this stuff. But at the same time, they're also saying, oh, this one is more dangerous. Oh, if it happened at the last park, man, something could happen at this one. And they they do that a lot at the beginning of the movie until the actual stuff happens and it's annoying because it doesn't feel as inventive it feels like another franchise movie that's kind of comparing itself to the previous movie as they're attempting to set up these characters that's pretty much all they feel like is a, is a setup these characters because you know they want you to feel for them they fail to be awe-inspiring and to make this movie a spectacle there's different ways you can think about calling a movie a spectacle. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about like Ben-Hur or something life-changing like Jurassic Park was. But again, you have to create something unique. And that's what I was hoping with Jurassic World. And I was talking with Matt and I was kind of joking how there's all this product placement. And at the end of the movie, minor spoiler, or actually, yeah, I guess spoiler alert. I'm assuming that most of everybody in the world has already seen this movie based on the box office intake. But there's a dino battle in the middle of like where all the snacks and vendors are located. Where you have Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville, Starbucks, Verizon, Brookstone, Pandora Jewelers. And they're battling in every single camera movement or camera shot of the dinosaurs battling. You see one of these vendors, one of these shots in the frame. So it felt like you were watching a fight in the Samsung, Hilton, Pandora, Brookstone, Mercedes, Ben and Jerry's, Verizon, Garden Arena, T-Rex versus the Andromedus Rex. Be there for the epic showdown. You know, I just couldn't help feeling that way. Am I the only one who feels this way towards Jurassic World? No, there are others out there. But I think the majority still will enjoy this movie. And yet, I even give this movie 3 out of 5. But I'm sorry, I'm one of those people that grew up with Jurassic Park. I even grew up with the sequels. There were moments in the sequel, in Lost World, that were better shot or better executed than any shot or scene in Jurassic World. For example, when the RVs, when the trailers are hanging off the edge of the cliff and they're trying to escape the trailer before it, you know, the T-Rexes push it off the side of the cliff. Talk about tension, beautifully shot. That is what Jurassic World was missing. Art behind the camera. And maybe that's because the director, the film he directed before this is safety not guaranteed. And I'm not too familiar what he did beforehand. So this is really his very first blockbuster movie. And to me, while watching the movie, I don't want to take anything away from him, but it just feels like it was lacking something behind the camera. Again, there's still some joy to find in this movie. If you are anything like me, I hope you're not. Because I do hope you enjoy the movie. I do give this one, though, 3 out of 5. 
All right. Well, last but not least, then we've got Love and Mercy, the American 2014 American biographical film directed by Bill Pollard, and it's about uh, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, and it covers a it covers the heyday of the '60s for the Beach Boys, and specifically for Brian Wilson as he is uh, generating the sounds at, right before a major break um, in his mind. As well as the subsequent time in the 80s when he meets his uh, future wife, Melinda Ledbetter. Um, Future Brian is played by John Cusack. Uh, 60s Brian is played by Paul Dano. And then Elizabeth Banks is Melissa Ledbetter. And then, of course, the uh, infamous Dr. Eugene Landy is played by the amazing Paul Giamatti. Now... This film is remarkably historically accurate. I am a big fan of Brian Wilson and of the Beach Boys overall, even though I don't think Tim ever knew that, and was very, very trepidatious of this film because of knowing his actual history and having read about it and watched um, actual documentaries, not other biographical films. Or biopics, rather. And so I was very trepidatious. It turns out this was very, very faithfully recreated. And I got to hand it to him for getting that right. Um, Paul Giamatti, um, people will be thinking that this guy is, it's overacting. They actually kind of reined this Landy character in for the film. Because they just, that they were like, people aren't going to believe it. He was that fucking crazy um i thought that paul dano did an amazing job as 60s brian and as much as i love john cusack he did he did he did a good job he did a great job too but um i don't think he did as good of a job as playing 80s brian as paul dano did playing 60s brian elizabeth banks did a fantastic job as well and i all the way around this movie for me just Loved it. Loved it. It is truly my first five-star rated movie of the year. Woo! Congratulations! Congratulations to Love and Mercy. So, yeah. You guys need to see it. It's amazing. I will be highly, highly surprised if there is not some form or fashion of um, Oscar nods going on for this film at the end of the year. Or beginning of 2016. So... There you go. Bring us home, Tim. And just to say, during pre-show, Matt tried to make me think that this was going to be a a whiplash repeat where he was probably going to give this movie a two out of five star. So, luckily, he did not. There is so much more ground this film could have covered because it's the Beach Boys. You know, they've done so much stuff. But if they covered that ground, they could have run the risk of being another movie about a young band in the 60s like a lot of other movies out there but they didn't they were committed to telling the story of brian wilson and the illness that fueled his creativity and ultimately led to his uh i guess you could call it downfall with the beach boys This movie could have been told in many different ways. It could have been a depressing tale of madness and paranoia, but you get a story that's treated with so much joy and respect 
which is also fueled by compassion. You can tell that the filmmakers who made this movie loved the material. They loved Brian. They understood... Well, maybe not understood, but they they had a grasp of what was going on in his head. And I just thought not many movies can pull off transitioning between, you know, going back and forth through time as smoothly as this movie did. The transitions were beautiful through the music, through various moments of making pet sounds and smile. It was just wonderful. I thought everybody in this film did an awesome job. Everybody from Paul Dano to the other Beach Boys to his father to the 80s future with uh, Paul Giamatti, Elizabeth Banks. I thought, I mean, this is the best thing I've ever seen Elizabeth Banks in. She was absolutely wonderful. And John Cusack was stellar. Probably the best movie I've seen him in in quite some time. The movie does have some faults, and I really don't think they're worth really mentioning because, again, they might be super nitpicky. However, I cannot give this movie five stars because of them, so I will give this one 4.75. Loved it. You gotta see it. Best movie of the year so far. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. You've given other movies that have not been the best this year five stars. Oh, wait. What have I given five stars? Let's see. You gave Elaine Stritch Shoot Me a five. You gave It Happened One Night a five. Oh, hang on, hang on. And I meant you gave Wild. A I five. meant best movie released that came out in 2015 is what I meant. Not necessarily okay. of the show. I meant released in 2015. I should say. Okay. Well, there yeah. you go. Now we've worked that out there. Okay. So next week's movies are going to be Inside Out, Love in the Time of Monsters, and. Hits. So, of course, Inside Out is going to be is the new Pixar flick in the oh, theaters. Oh, it's not the porno? Love in the Time of... Yeah. Love in the Time of Monsters is, uh, of course, the movie we were discussing earlier. And you can catch that on, like, iTunes or Amazon for VOD. And then Hits is actually on Netflix. So, awesome. And I believe that does bring us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on... All right, well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, are still the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can, of course, follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can, of course, get a court get aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your thing. You can, of course, also subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Bryce Dallas Howard, I get to say this. I struggle immensely with celebrities of all kinds. I get clammy hands and turn a little purple. And this is Tim from the Urethra Comet. Or Asteroid. Or the Urethra Urethra Franklin Rock. I I honestly don't remember what we were talking about an hour and a half ago. Talk to you guys next week for the Tim texts, updates, and whatnot. Should be fun. Come on back. Join us. That wasn't needy at all. That that wasn't what? (laughs) That wasn't needy at all. (laughs) (laughs) And we're clear.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.